Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. Okay, our guest today is Tina Collins. Born into a family with a history of mental illness, Tina began to experience symptoms as a child. Over the course of adolescence and young adulthood, she was living life on two parallel tracks. One, an attempt to move forward through the passages of growth and maturity. The other, leading her away from the world and reality. A long and foggy period of disability followed. Multiple treatments led to the diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, which features abnormal thought processes and unstable moods. She realized she had been hallucinating for 20 years. Therapy and medication helped her wake up from this long nightmare, and she embarked on the slow journey to recovery. Tina, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. So this is this is quite the journey. When when did you realize that something was not right in your life? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, it was always sort of there, even as a child, um, a sort of shadow that was following me about. Uh, but in my adolescence, about the age of fourteen, I had what I guess could be termed my first breakdown. I couldn't go to school. Um, wasn't feeling well, but that was before they diagnosed uh, particularly young people with depression. So people just thought I had mono or something like that. Um, but that was the first time it stopped me from functioning. So when you say it stopped you from functioning, what? How did that manifest? A terrible fatigue, a feeling of not being able to sleep, but at the same time not being able to stop. Uh, sleeping to stop laying down I couldn't concentrate uh, had a just very morbid view of the world um, I had been a good student so people weren't that concerned um, they just thought I was going through some sort of teenage uh, problem or illness that was temporary well, when did you realize that something was really off was it at that point or later on at that point, I was sort of struggling to stay above it. But the following year, uh, again in the spring, which at that point was my worst season, I had a terrible depression, and I knew something was terribly wrong. It was very stormy, uh, much stronger than the one the year before, which had also been quite severe. Um, and I felt suicidal at that point. Um, and I kept asking the question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I feel horrible. Um, but I sort of hit it, and I kept trying to function. Hmm. And as far as the people around you, did anybody notice what was going on? Was there any obvious indicator? Well, they did. I mean, initially, in the first year, they took me to the doctor who thought, I had some sort of um, something like mono or it was just a going through a, you know, teenage period of difficulty. Um, the next year it was so bad and so fierce that my reaction was actually to shut down, to not talk to anybody, 
I didn't really think anybody would believe me. I didn't really know what it was. Um, and uh, my parents were um, not really equipped to communicate with me about it. Mm. This is one of the big things, isn't it, that people just don't believe. Oh, you know, no one's going to be no one's going to believe me with this, so I'll just stay quiet. Yes, Some... and there's also uh, the idea, especially at that time, um, this was pre-Prozac. Um, you know, this was uh, in the late 70s, so it wasn't talked about very much. It wasn't well understood, certainly not in younger people. Mm. And, you know, I thought it was a failing of my own that I just had to keep trying harder and, you know, even though my parents were not without some sympathy, they also just thought, well, you just have to keep trying. You go to school, you know, concentrate, you'll get over it. What do, how did you feel? How did you feel when people said that, especially your parents, just get over it? Well, depression loves to feed on whatever people give it. So it tends mm. to uh, get worse to, you know, feed upon that feeling that, you're at fault, you know, you're a horrible person. Um, and so it kind of absorbed into my brain that I had to do something about it. No matter how badly I felt, I thought I have to find a way to overcome it. It's up to me. Um, it's something wrong with me that I mm. have to correct. So it never, it never occurred to you that there might be something else wrong that was not actually you, but something something else entirely? At some point, um, there started to come out some discussions about depression. Um, there had been a few, like, celebrities early on, like Patty Duke. And I started to hear those stories and think, is that what's going on? Um, but it was sort of peripheral. Uh, I mean, I still thought it was something I should correct and that, you know, I couldn't really diagnose myself, obviously. It's very hard when you're in it to get the full picture of what's going on in your own life. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I had a question that slipped my mind, so. <laughs> I mean, even to get that picture you, you talk of, and you, as Nathan uh, read in your biography, was that you realized you had been hallucinating for 20 years. So getting to that point where you you create that, I've been hallucinating, what, what happened then? How did that actually look that you, you look back on your life as what it was, but I've just been hallucinating? What was going on there? Uh, I had an absolute moment of epiphany. Uh, I had entered into therapy with... Uh, a new group, a new psychiatrist and a therapist who worked together. Mm. And I was in her office and um, I was feeling kind of strange as I entered the appointment. And uh, I had obviously been very, very ill by the time I got there. But even they weren't sure what was going on. Um, but as I sat in her office, uh, everything started growing dark. Um, and foggy, like a cloud was rolling in. All uh, the pictures kind of faded that were in the background, and she started looking like she was getting larger and larger and yelling at me, and her face was transforming into just a terrible sort of 
uh, demonic mass. Now, my response in those situations was to completely shut down on the surface. So I kept talking to her. I heard her questions and I answered them. And then I left the office and uh, I thought, I'm never coming back. That was, a, you know, I said, that was the worst therapist ever. How could anybody look like that? It's terrible. I'm never coming back. But for some reason, I did. And the following week when she saw me, she said, you seem better than last week. And I said, yeah, I, I feel better. I sort of felt like I was sort of waking up is the only way to describe it. And then in the next week, so it was a two-week period of sort of waking up from that dream, I came back to her and realized that that experience had not been real. That was a hallucination, and I walked into her office and I said, I've been hallucinating. Wow. What did she say when you said that? Well, she had guessed something was going on. Um, I thought I was hiding it better than I was, and I think that's the interesting part of it. I didn't act out. I did shut down and sort of kept one foot in reality, but obviously I appeared somehow odd. Um, and she, she then understood, you know, what had been going on in my previous appointments. I have to say the problem with psychosis is that it's not always that dramatic. A lot of times it's very subtle and it can fool the most intelligent person because it is subtle and it's an alteration of how you perceive things. So your senses are all you know of the world. That's how you define the world. And if your senses are seeing and hearing things in a sort of nightmarish way, uh, that's what you think the world is. And that's what I thought. I thought this is a really terrible, dark world. I don't know how everybody else is functioning in it. I thought they must be stronger than me. There's something wrong that I can't overcome it. And at some point, I started questioning what the difference was. I kept questioning, is this real? Is this real? I have diaries where I kept writing out that question. Like, what is going on? Is this real? Um, and as I went to therapy, it, it just came up to the surface. It's very much like drowning, and you just have to keep swimming up and up until you break the surface. And did you actually break the surface, as you say, or, or did something else show you what was happening? Well, I think it was a combination of medicines which calmed down uh, some of the activity of my brain. It seems like that was the response. And then the therapist and the psychiatrist had sent me to a neuropsychologist who worked with them uh, because they weren't quite sure how to diagnose me. Now, his uh, test results, um, showed that I had levels of schizophrenia, depression, and paranoia at the level of someone who should be institutionalized for life. Oh, joy. Now, when he said those results to me, I actually burst out crying. Partly it was upsetting, but partly there was a sense of relief, like I'm getting an idea of what's going on. It was actually a good thing in some ways. However, um, when he said, oh, you have this you know, high level of paranoia, I thought, no, well, that one's wrong. Schizophrenia, yes. Depression, yes. But I'm not paranoid. And of course, I was terribly paranoid. But uh, even after that test result, I was not in complete, you know, acceptance. Um, 
But what happened is my therapist and my psychiatrist just decided, I guess, to believe in me, to believe that I could get better. Um, it was a lifeline. Mm. How how did they come to that decision? And, and when they did, what did they do to help you? Um, well, they just sensed, you know, I had a high level of intelligence and that I had, you know, somehow applied it to dealing with the illness so that I hadn't completely fallen apart. I mean, honestly, I spent a lot of time in the fetal position, sort of, you know, just trying to escape everything because it was such a dark and nightmarish world for me. But, um, you know, I would then get up at times and try it, and they just seemed to believe that I could uh, re-enter reality. Um, And the interaction of the therapy where you have to go and talk to somebody and start um, developing a connection to another person is vital. It's The medicines are vital, but so is that interpersonal connection that occurs in therapy. It's unlike any other relationship. It's very important. So how does it help you? Mm. What does it do? Well, she accepted me. I mean, there's obviously there's no judgment, um, but she also pushed me because it's so easy just to collapse and give up. It's just such a heavy burden to have these symptoms. So I felt she was sympathetic. At the same time, she would push me to keep trying to do things to reconnect with the world. And uh, sometimes I resisted, but eventually I, I listened to her and uh, I was able to to do that, to develop relationships. And uh, obviously I got married, which was, you know, a miracle really. But I have to say, in addition to individual therapy, uh, I also go to group therapy with the same therapist. And that's not a common thing anymore. And I can't say how important it is uh, to to reestablish that as part of therapy. Group therapy is very, very helpful. Um, it's a long, slow process to recover. And with something like schizophrenia, where you have a lot of trouble interacting with people, you can't just you know, go to a therapist and get better, you have to take steps. And it's the therapist, it's the psychiatrist, and then in my case, it's also this group um, that has lasted for years and has just been so important in teaching me how to interact with people again. So what is the first step that you need to take along this journey? Well, I think it really helps to have a sense of curiosity um, because sometimes you need to question yourself and question what you're seeing and question other people as well. Um, But the most important quality is persistence. You just have to keep trying. You have to keep going to treatment. You have to keep taking the medicine. It's a long, slow process. You have to stick with it. Mm. I think one thing you just said there, Tina, which you've used a different word, and I just wanted to clarify, um, so many of our guests have used what you've used as the word curiosity and the way you explained that. Other people are calling awareness. Would you agree with, am I correct in saying that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
And this seems to be that vital point of the awareness of what's going on, where I am, where I keep ending up. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I forget what you said, where you keep ending up. Mm. Um, it's that idea if you keep trying the same thing over and over and expecting the same or getting the same result, maybe you yes. have to, yeah, examine and some what people, you're doing. Some people are just not aware of that cycle that's happening of, I keep ending up here, I keep ending they, They're aware that they're there, but it's... Yeah, to be able to be very aware of what's going on there is, I'd imagine, uh, the thing that's going to allow you then to be able to create that different bit of thinking to where can I possibly be then. Absolutely, and it applies to everybody. I mean, it's not just, in my case, the severe mental illness, but mm. you know, I see it in other people all the time who are functioning but keep asking, you know, why am I always in this relationship or Absolutely. job? Yes, it's the same thing. It's just, um, it's kind of like, I always think there's different levels of, you know, swimming up into awareness. And we all have mm. to do that. It's not mm. somebody's mentally ill. Absolutely. And I, I, I do like the word that you used, curiosity. When we are curious about something, we'll start to ask questions. Yeah, and what's interesting too, like I, I've just been sitting here reflecting on... Um, Another man, I believe, famous in something chemistry or physics, John Nash, I think was his name. Absolutely, the movie of, yeah. Yeah. And what I found really telling when I watched that movie is he was talking about, after a while, he got to the point where he realized that his hallucinations had a particular quality. They were always the same. And the characters mm -hmm. within the hallucinations never got older. He was getting older, everything around him was getting older, everything was changing, but everything in the hallucinations was exactly the same. So, and I thought that was fascinating. And in fact, I remember, uh, yes, I've seen the movie and, and read the book, that he would actually, you know, see the hallucinations and know they were hallucinations. Exactly. Um, you know, by the end, I compare it to something that people sometimes uh, experience called lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. Where you're you're asleep and dreaming, but you in the dream know it's a dream, and it's um, it's, it reminds me of that song, you know, "Merrily, merrily, we roll along, life is but a dream." It, it is in many ways. I mean, mental illness is just a very extreme uh, sort of reaction to uh, perception of the world. I think. I would agree. Yes, and, and it's it's. Sorry, I just wanted to make a quick point. It, yeah. It's just, it's why I kept saying about this thing with depression and my experiences of it, is that, well, it, it, actually, you, you use the right word, extreme. Extreme view of reality. And if you start questioning it long enough, you start to see that things are not exactly what you think they are. They're actually something else. Yes, uh... Or in, in the case of somebody perhaps is not dealing with a mental illness, perhaps it's something more or something less. I, I mean, you don't just have to accept things as they occur. You have to examine them from different angles. One thing that is uh, maybe a bit unusual, I actually, and I think I made a, a conscious choice to develop a sense of humor even as I was very ill. Um, I guess I always had a, a sense of the absurdity of a lot of things. And it's not a bad thing. It's sort of like a, a Dr. Seussian 
view of the world. And I um, would sometimes ap approach things with that. I, I think that can really help people. I, I'm not sure how I hooked into that. It wasn't something I was necessarily born with. But, um, you know, I, I think there's a creative ways to deal with problems in life. And even if they're extreme or um, devastating, you see that other people also have that approach. And I think that helps. Um, you have to take a creative angle to what you are doing. Um, so take, for instance, with my psychosis, I would sometimes get to the point where I just I just knew my brain was sort of you know exploding in my head and all these different aspects were uh, fracturing out and causing me lots of trouble so I would sometimes uh, and it wasn't a necessary hallucination but it was a sort of idea that I was going to talk to my uh, different aspects of psychosis and uh, you know give them what for so take for instance. So take for instance. I was like, okay, time to call the group together. And you know, part of the um, schizoaffective psychosis is this extreme depression. So in my mind, it was like me as like a waif in the corner, just you know, in rags, like a Charles Dickens novel. And I would turn to that aspect of it and say, all right, enough of that. You know, get up and you know, stop whimpering in the corner. Um, the the paranoia, which often took the form of a sort of shadow man, um, and that occurs with many people, apparently, I would, you know, turn to him and say, okay, stop it. So get out, stop following me about and making me, you know, feel hostile toward the world. And then the other part of it, which is very disorganized and causes life to be a mess, uh, literally and figuratively, I kind of pictured it as a Tasmanian devil. And I would say, all right, that's it, out out all of you <laughs> out of my head <laughs> I, you're causing me trouble so um, there are many creative ways to deal with things I think I was lucky that I sort of hooked into that because I, I sort of like I said developed an almost humorous view of it at times so when you did that what, what happened when you would say to them out you know? well I think it's the power of acknowledging things and you know I happen to put this sort of creative spin on it but it's it's sort of like that idea in um, Harry Potter of he who shall be nameless I'm like just say it it's Voldemort he's evil you have to fight him and it's the same with mental illness you have to acknowledge it to yourself and to other people and say this is it these are you know this is what's happening this is how I'm reacting and seeing things and when you name things and you acknowledge them, that starts to give you power over them. You take your power back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, sometimes naming can get in the way if you take it too far, as some people do, and some of these different uh, groups, recovery groups, they just go too far with the naming and they get lost in the naming. It's like, yeah, but what about getting free of this stuff? What about finding a way of dealing with it? And that seems to go by a lot of people, but not in your case, not not from what you're saying. Yeah, people get lost in a sort of a semantic uh, <laughs> syndrome, I call it, where, you know, and I, I for a while had that where I, I had to know what it was. And it was very important that I apply, you know, names to the disorders and the treatments. And it, it helped for a while. But yeah, you can't get stuck in all the labels. Um, 
but it, it helps to sort of say, okay, this is the best definition I have mm. of what's been troubling me. Um, and now I'm going to take that knowledge and move beyond it. Um, so mm. I think people just get stuck in that part of the process. It sort of allows them to. It sort of allows them to say, okay, it's not actually me. It is something that's going on. But like I said, not but, but not identifying with that and be and becoming that label. It's just using that to say, right, something something is happening and it's not me. Well, it's very interesting because I've had this discussion in my group, uh, and it is a very interesting point that no matter what, uh, you need treatment or and you or therapy or help in some way in life. Mm-hmm. We all do, but you ultimately have to make a choice. I mean, even if I feel better and I know what's going on and there's some sort of definition of it and even if I have support, at some point I have to say, I'm going to make the choice to live a happier life. Uh, I can because I do feel better, but I also have to make that choice. I could easily say, oh, the first half of my life was this nightmare. I'm just going to be depressed about that now for the mm. <laughs> for the rest of my life, and I yeah. can't. I mean, I don't want to do that. So ultimately, there is a personal choice in in many things. Um, it's not alone. I mean, you have to sort of. Unfortunately, life is perhaps more complex than we'd like it to be. Um, mm. But it, you do have a choice at some point in pretty much everything that happens to you. And uh, maybe this- you. Can, Oops. I was just going to say, Tina. This is the this you've just hit on the second biggest point with with where people are at with mental illness. You clearly des- described the first one as curiosity, the awareness, and being knowing what's going on. But the second big thing, which everyone says as well, is the choice. It's critical. Yes. It is, and and it does help to um, have uh, the right support system. In my case. It was uh, largely my therapist, and I have to say my husband has helped me continue on the journey of recovery. Um, He met me when I was much better, but I still had many skills I had to learn because I just Mm. hadn't quite gotten those skills um, due to the illness. I sort of stagnated in many areas. So Mm. you do need support, but you have to seek it out as well. And unfortunately... You know, no matter what, no one can carry you from the bed to the therapist's office and talk for you. You you have to at some point stand up and and take yourself to there yeah. and acknowledge that you need help, but you also have to make the choice to get the help. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so many people do not make that critical choice. They stay stuck or they, they wallow or they go back, they regress, whatever you want to call it. It's something that we... Uh, we've seen repeatedly in in the group that we formed is that there would be like, I, I don't know I, I I have trouble getting into the mindset of what's going on there with people but mm. there's a Hamish I, I think you can elaborate on it better they're, than me well I think that they're not ready they're not ready they haven't found that awareness they're not ready to make that choice so there's not a lot of interaction there's not that people are just still stuck there and that's okay eventually at some point in time they will or they or they won't it doesn't matter it's uh, it's their journey and it's it's these messages that are just going to help them 
possibly create that thinking of that awareness and then to make that choice. And you, and you just hit on it too, and thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, that's what the number one problem is. It's not that they're not ready. The problem is that the, the awareness isn't there. If the awareness isn't there, nothing can happen, not in my experience. Mm. Mm. The awareness well, is primary. It's yeah. got to be well, there. They may, they may just not be ready for that awareness. It's uh, true. It, true. Uh, they, uh, I, was, I just wanted to ask you, Tina. What what was the? Do, do you know what the the number that defining moment, that choice, that decision that you made that after that awareness you came to that choice? What was that, and what happened then? Uh, well, after I think that epiphany and the diagnosis. Right. I was um, again for me. It was something of a relief. I felt like. Somebody understood. I understood it better. I understood why the world seems so horrible. And at that point, I have to say, I just made the choice to to keep going for treatment and keep trying. It was just, I guess one could say at that point, it was like, well, I could just give up now. It's been so many years and I'm sick and that's that. But I just didn't. Um, I just decided to persist. I mean, you just have to put one foot in front of the other. It's one step at a time. It is a very long process. It requires a lot of patience on both the part of the support system, whether it's family or doctors, and the person themselves. Um, And you don't know where it will take you. um, But And that can often scare a lot of people as well, where it is going to take them, because they have no idea, so they don't go there. Well, I think also, I mean, people... I've I seen this in my own family. I mean, it, sometimes it's easier to stick with what you know, even if it's terrible, because people are more scared of the unknown. And I just decided to conquer that fear. I had a lot of that. Um, just in daily skills, I was really struggling. Take, for instance, driving, which is so necessary here in America because there's not a lot of public transportation, uh, was hard for me. Um, the perceptual distortions that occur in there and uh, psychosis cause uh, eye-hand coordination and vision, et cetera, to be sort of off. And uh, I decided just to take the wheel and and start to learn to really drive. I mean, I had a license, et cetera, but I hardly went anywhere. And that was frightening. And I acknowledged that I was scared and that I was probably going to mess up at times, you know, get lost, etc. But I was just going to power through it. Uh, I think it's okay for people to feel scared. I just don't think that they should let that stop them. I mean, I think it's important what I've learned, which is which has really been helpful is like with other women in my group, some of them um, have anxiety, it's not bipolar, etc. It's a mix of problems but some of them with uh, like a pure anxiety disorder had the same problem you know that somehow driving was uh, scary to them um yeah. and and so i i realized i wasn't alone again if you keep the person communicating and you can get them you can keep drawing them out the fear starts to become uh not just your own thing. It's not just you. No matter how sick I was, so many of my problems, other people can identify with at some level. Um, Like that, you know, really learning skills or going someplace new or meeting somebody new. Uh, That's not just my illness. We all struggle with that. 
And that really helped me to know that a lot of what I had was, was not really abnormal. It was just I had been ill, plus I was developing those skills or trying mm. to. Yeah. So, so what would you say to somebody in your situation? What's the number one thing that you would tell them? Well, I would tell them that they need to keep going to the doctor and the therapist, and you need both. Um, I hope that people have that available. Obviously, with uh, insurance, etc., everybody has sort of um, different access. But it takes a long time. I tried many medications until I found a rather uh, unusual combo um, that helped me. And I learned to work with the doctor. People need to learn to work with the medical professionals. Sometimes uh, I hear a lot of complaints about, uh, you know, the doctor and I can't, he doesn't spend enough time with me or, or they seem to want some sort of um, comfort from them. They're there to help. Not everyone's perfect. They're human too. But if you go in and just tell them how you're feeling, what's going on with the meds, they will try to help you. I mean, they will. Uh, most people will respond. Um, and sometimes you have to find a new medical professional. But that's the most important thing. You need that combination if you're that sick. If you're sick like me, where I do need chemical assistance. Um, but it's the most important thing is you have to stick with it. You have to just decide you're going to deal with this problem and keep dealing with it until you find something that makes you feel better. And you can because uh, I thought I'd never feel well. And and this is this is probably another not the sort of the next stage is keeping that that commitment, being committed to what you're doing, even though. And I no doubt you would have been through through those moments as well, where you just want to give up. This is too hard, and it's not just through this mental illness journey. It is like you've said before: it's people doing all sorts of things in life. We choose to do something, we step into doing it, but then all of a sudden it's too hard. Uh, keeping that commitment through this journey with mental illness, the stuff that you've broken through, would be very hard, I'd imagine. It is, and and frankly, it's funny you say that because. Uh, <laughs> It, following through on things has always been a challenge for me. I just get tired. I mean, when I was really sick, I would get tired in the middle of taking a shower. I would literally have to sit down and rest. <laughs> so I had to like commit myself to, you know, brushing my teeth or taking a shower or doing those sort of daily things that for some people are automatic. But um, it's once you do them, you know you'll feel better. And so it's okay to start small. I mean, it's okay to say I'm going to just get up and put some clothes on. I mean, for schizophrenics particularly, those processes can be exhausting. Mm. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. And, uh, and Yeah, and you take the, if you take those little things and achieve them, you start to, there's proof in what you're doing. I can get results. I can get results. So you can then start to stretch them out into something a little bit bigger. Absolutely. And there's nothing too small that is not... A triumph it, it particularly for people with uh, you know certain disabilities or illnesses I mean if you can you know get up if you're mentally ill and you know and so many people sit there in sort of disheveled exhausted state if you can get up and just get 
some clothes on and just step outside, that is a triumph. Um, And then next day, maybe you'll take a little walk. It's okay to start small, um, knowing you will feel better if you keep doing those things. Yes. So for those who have been listening to us here, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, well, uh, any way that, that works. I have a blog um, about my mental illness that uh, people can communicate with me on. Um, I think I've given you the link to that. It's called yes. Outlier Mind. I've sort of stuck with my TEDx uh, theme of, of outliers. Um, and, uh, of course, my email. Uh, people are welcome to contact me through that as well. Um, I love to talk to everybody. Um, in fact, I just kind of went from being kind of paranoid and introverted to now walking down the street and pretty much talking to everybody. So I've <laughs> gone in the opposite direction. <laughs> isn't <laughs> it fantastic doing that? that. <laughs> w- <laughs> isn't it such, just a great thing to do, though? I do it all the time, just walk down the street and talk to people who I've never met. It drives my, my daughter crazy. But it, it, can be so, it, it really makes your day. It can be so positive. I I, I was just going to say that the big part of mental illness is how isolating it can be. Mm. Um, Reach out, you know, and and just learn how to introduce yourself to people. You don't have to discuss your illness. You you don't have to discuss major things, but just walk out into the world and try to connect. That is what will help. And it can be as simple as the little small step of saying, if I'm, when I'm out today, I'm just going to say hi to one person I've never met before and just see what happens. You'll, you'll get a high back and you'll, you'll just feel good and keep going. You don't need to have a conversation. Exactly. Or just smiling at somebody or, and mm. just being aware of other people. The thing with mental illness is, yes, it's, it's quite a... a severe experience but the more you talk to people the more you realize how much you have in common with everybody no matter what your background or what your problems are um connecting with other humans is what makes us better Mm. yep thank you very much for being on the show with us today it's good to have you thank you so much for inviting me i so enjoyed this Oh, I said I said at the beginning when we were talking that I think uh, our listeners are going to get a lot of little nice little gold nuggets, little little things to just trigger that thinking. And I think that there's many through this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I I could talk with you guys for hours. I'm sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anybody, please give them my links. I would be happy to talk. To we people. will absolutely put them up for people to access. Uh, yes. Yeah. So for those of you who have been listening to us, my name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia. We're the Thought Hackers, and with us today has been Tina Collins. Tina, thanks so much. And for those of you who have been listening, we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thought Hackers. And regardless of where you are on your journey... Whether you would like to be a guest and share your story, or if you are still living with pain each day, please get in touch and we will help you where we can. Simply send an email to hamish at thethoughthackers.com.